The title of this evening's talk is Wise Concentration. And we'll begin our evening discussion with three Pali words that Winnie has already mentioned. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. And these Pali words translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about uh, these three particular aspects of mind as being essential, the essential and the indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, insight. These three form the three branches of mental development. That is actually essential to all forms, to all schools of Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of mind and of heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through the direct meditative experience of the three what are called liberating insights. And the first of these is, in Pali, anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena. The second is the Pali word dukkha, or dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences. And the third of these three liberating insights is anatta, the impersonality of all the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one onto the final liberating wisdom. And as I think some of you, maybe most of you, know, concentration plays a very important role in the Buddhist teachings. It's one of what are called the seven factors of awakening. And those are mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Concentration is also one of uh, what are called the five spiritual powers. And these are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The Buddha commented a number of times that the practice of vipassana, the practice of mindfulness-based insight, without the support of samatha, without the support of concentration, is like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without the protection of a bodyguard. So it's pretty important. 
In the Buddha's words, as he often did, he starts with a question, and then he goes on to answer his own question. So here's one of his questions. If concentration, samatha, is developed, what profit does it bring, he asks. And then he answers. The mind is developed. And he goes on, if the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And his answer is, all greed is abandoned. If insight is developed, he asks, what profit does it bring? And he answers, wisdom is developed. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers, all ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration, samatha meditation or samadhi meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular, alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of the purification that comes about through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, through our exploration of virtual ethical or um, virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and as the practices of virtue, as they deepen and as they mature in our own body, heart, and mind, we come to understand through our really own direct experience what brings happiness and contentment and ease on a deeper and more profound level, and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. Ethical behavior, ethical discipline, is the basis for developing samatha or samadhi, concentration. The Sanskrit term samadhi, the Pali term samatha, refers really not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and balance. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of ethical discipline, the practice of sila and behavior affords us is the recognition of and the seeing our self-identification in relationship to our usually very long-standing habits of attraction, which very often show up as greed, clinging, expectation, and attachment, and our long-standing habits of aversion, which show up as worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, doubt. These habits of mind are the 
primary mental and physical phenomena that create the suffering, that create our suffering, and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round and round of worldly suffering. And the Pali word for that is samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing what we sometimes call ultimate reality, and thus keeping us from awakening, keeping us from the liberation of the heart and the liberation of the mind. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and all physical phenomena, people, mountains, trees, galaxies, Massachusetts, California, Afghanistan, dogs, thoughts, rain, snow, New York, feelings, one's hair, one's aging body, sunshine, the White House, your favorite restaurant, Delta Airlines, etc., 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 are understood, are regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self-identity. In order to see the true nature of things, of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which are very much rooted in mindfulness. The Buddha, in speaking with one of his chief disciples, Ananda, and in this discussion, Ananda asks the Buddha a question, and the Buddha responds. Ananda says to the Buddha, What is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And the Buddha responds, Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. And he goes on. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. 
Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of liberation from suffering, to the consummation of awakening. And in speaking to his monks and nuns, to his disciples directly about his own process and experience, the Buddha said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we need to learn directly from our own experience and often uh, from some of our more difficult experiences and sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes as well as learning from our quieter and pleasant and beautiful and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the mind and the heart is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of Samatha, samadhi, concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potential powerful energy of the mind, which, as I'm sure each of you have noticed, is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining the mind in from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the very simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or being usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. And one of the important uh, aspects of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be constantly, or at least quite often, carried off over and over and over again by whatever breezes waft in upon it from any of the sense doors or from our own unconscious. So in light of this, we might want to ask ourselves the question, 
Does your mind control you? Or do you control your mind? So, for instance, if your intention is to keep the attention on the breath, but the mind just wanders off at the slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. And that's okay. Just notice that without judging. One of the wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a chosen object is really a skill that can be learned. Like any other skill, it can be learned. It can be learned by practice, by patient repetition, and it's a gradual development. That's how it works. The Buddhist uh, a treatise called the Vasudhimaga, which is a profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uh, this uh, rather amazing uh, treatise uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process uh, of this development and the act of concentration. And one of the metaphors that's uh, offered in this, uh, in this uh, book um, that I particularly relate to uh, because of my own experience is in creating pottery on a potter's wheel. And this is the metaphor that's offered in the Vasudhimaga. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Maybe some of you have tried this or maybe seen someone uh, do it. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed, focused of attention of body and of mind. Staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continued focused, clear, concentrated, and relaxed attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. Quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, learning to move into a very focused experience of deepening concentration. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind 
a concentrated mind brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. And we could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear, calm. Quite an energizing, refreshing, and potentially beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, of concentration, I think that it would be helpful for us to explore and to learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. And a quote from Tibetan Buddhist teacher B. Allen Wallace. Like a telescope launched into orbit beyond the distortion of the Earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of the mind. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, equanimity, They can't grow when the unwholesome states of mind of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation object, subject, such as the sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostrils, the anapana spot, or maybe the rising and the falling of the breath, the movement of the breath in the belly. If you're anxious, if you're worried and filled with expectation during the process, calm and joy are prevented from arising. Why? Because worry and expectation enslave us. With the practice of concentration, we need to be willing to let go of thought. And I talked about this a little bit uh, this morning, and um, I think Winnie may have touched on it this afternoon. Willingness to let go of thought, meaning not being seduced by it. Thought is, I once said to somebody, thought is the most seductive human experience. They argued with me, but Mm -hmm. I do still think it is our most seductive experience. We need to be willing to, we could say, cut through thought 
even thoughts that might seem really, really important in, in any particular moment. But it's very important to note here and for you to take in that this is not about kicking out thoughts. Booting out thoughts is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in the clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled, gets lost in something other than what's intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. I think you all know the mind can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, thinking that whatever it is is really, really important right now. I had such an experience during a three-month retreat that was devoted to the development of concentration that I sat with the Venerable Paul Oxayadao a number of years ago. For the first week or so of this retreat, <clears throat> each day after lunch, I would um, make myself a very fancy cup of tea by taking two or three different loose teas and mixing them together in a tea ball. And it seemed very important and seemingly totally necessary and an important treat and necessary treat that I really wanted. Well, towards the end of that first week, I noticed that there was this box of tea bags sitting on the counter. And it was one of the same teas that I was putting uh, into my fancy mix. It had, of course, been sitting there all along, but the mind hadn't connected with it with a clear awareness up until that very moment. And then the thought came as I was looking at this box of tea. Do I really need this? Is all of this fancy tea preparation and seeming need really important? Well, immediately came the answer internally, no. No, it's not at all important. It's just a habitual distraction. So from that day forward, I made a very simple cup of tea with this tea bag that was sitting there and I drank it with pleasure. What happened after this is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of this uh, three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions, uh, in relationship to various thoughts and various habitual thought patterns. Is this really important? And the answer was almost always, and more often as it went along, almost 100% of the time, quite clearly, and more and more obviously, no. And then I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. It simplified life a lot. Allowed me to practice concentration. 
more deeply. So again, the development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs uh, through the process of developing concentration and mindfulness is that the mind and heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed and aversion and lethargy and restlessness and doubt. These experiences that are classically called hindrances in the Buddhist teachings. Classically, the development of concentration is described as the purification of the mind. And again, as the Buddha said that I've already mentioned, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, weakens and after a while seriously weakens these hindrances, these unwholesome states of mind. Takes some time, though. In the moments when calm and joy and tranquility and a a blissful sense of contentment and happiness and peace and equanimity, these fruits of concentration practice begin to manifest more clearly, unwholesome states of mind are temporarily over time eliminated, temporarily. That's an important word here. As well as considerably weakened over the long term. Particularly if one's concentration develops and deepens. So now taking a bit of a look at how the different factors of a growing and deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that can hinder the development of concentration and that also hinder the blossoming of insight. It's not kind of arbitrary or sort of willy-nilly. It's very actually clear and scientific, we could say. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and from inner obstacles, giving the mind a greater and greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object. And there's a word, a Pali word for this, it's called vitaka. And eventually then establishing the attention, establishing the mind on the object, such as the sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostril area, the touching point, the anapanaspa. 
This eventually, temporarily, eliminates dullness, sleepiness, and stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention on the object, again such as the breath, and the Pali word for this process is called vichara. And this eventually, temporarily eliminates uncertainty and doubt within the practice. And it weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. The deeply concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, or a bright kind of happiness, and a kind of elation in the mind, resulting from the developing purity of heart and mind. And the word for this process or this experience, these experiences, is piti in Pali. And this brings a very delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention, such as the breath. And with the development of a deepening concentration, which results in varying degrees of PT, ill will is temporarily inhibited. As we continue with this process of the development of the mind through the practice and the development of concentration, the concentrated state of bliss contentment, a sweet, easeful happiness, and the Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity is actually not a particularly bodily experience, a pleasant bodily feeling, but it's a blissful, contented mental experience. When this occurs to varying degrees through our practice and through the deepening of concentration, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are eventually, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of a one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration, and the Pali word for that is ikagata. With this occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration and mindfulness, This one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a clear, strong, and pervasive energy of centeredness. Centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And during this time, when this is moving along and developing and getting deeper and stronger, during this time, Sensuous desire for anything, anything else, is inhibited, is at bay. As concentration develops and moves along, the states that corrupt the natural purity and luminosity of the mind and the heart, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also very much includes clinging and self-identification to pleasant and other habitual states of mind and body, when at least some of this has been 
clearly let go of, temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished. At this time, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience great inspiration and enthusiasm and appreciation connected with the Buddha, the Buddha's teachings, the Dhamma, and the community of practitioners, and if you have a teacher to one's own teacher, one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and know our ourself as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes translated uh, as rapture, is born in us. And with this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment and without any personal identification in those moments, and that's very important, the body and the mind eventually becomes very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy are removed. They disappear in the calm and in the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, and again without any attachment, and without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained, mindful presence. So another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. And so in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect 
the influence of raga. And this is a Pali word that's literally translated as unwholesome passion. And it's often used synonymously with greed and with unwholesome desire and craving and attachment and clinging, which is the core cause of our human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, the uh, an analogy that was very often used uh, regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and to protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought an unwholesome emotion, be aware that it has arisen, or will be aware of a very provocative sense input, but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging, to drench the mind with aversion. A similar image uh, that uh, often was used was that of the of water rolling off a lotus leaf and also water rolling off the feathers of a duck. <clears throat> the nature of concentration is threefold. So in other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop and serve us, serve our insight practice. And the first of these is called in Pali, kanaka samadhi, or translated as momentary concentration. And this is the development and the growing maturation of our ability to focus on one object after another object after another object, one by one by one. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, ongoing, moment by moment by moment. The cultivation of our capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice, essential for vipassana practice. The second type or the second level of concentration is called upachara samadhi or access concentration or the term that I like that's often used is neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or what is called jhana concentration. And it can be reaccessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of uh, a state of absorption or jhana. Excess concentration is often experienced as similar to uh, the intensity and depth of jhana, but it's not an absorbed concentration. Meaning it does not stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does absorption or jhana concentration. With this 
neighborhood concentration. The mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. And when the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. At this time, the unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened, though they're not totally and not finally eliminated. It's really only through vipassana practice, only through insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are eventually totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana, our insight practice, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, (coughs) less attachment, and less identification, self-identification, but rather with a very interested, open-hearted, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that actually isn't everyone's inclination or interest. It might be an interest, but it might not be an inclination. That happens too. And it really is not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana practice, a potentially liberating insight practice to unfold. The achievement of jhana particularly, jhana concentration, (coughs) may often and usually requires many months or may even many years of single-pointed practice, meditating for many, many hours a day. And this certainly may be impractical for some people. For others, it may be possible and may be worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with what's called not-self or no-self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of just what's taking place, with no pondering and no commentary, 
no thinking about what's occurring, and not making something out of our experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. Just as it is. So in this light, I'd like to share a very simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme, austere practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the Bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, his name before he became the Buddha, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? And in reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival. It was a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual uh, marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally, sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with very, the very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything. He was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and heard the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the sharp, strong shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring and devouring, struggling, suffering and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety and the joy and beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, 
clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the sweet-smelling rose apple tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him. And in his mind, and his heart, feeling no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict. Nothing to add, nothing to take away. As he silently sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasure and unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice, without attachment, And finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a very deep state of concentration. It's said that it was the first jhana, through mindfulness of breathing. Experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure, a joyful happiness that wasn't born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of his body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha, could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that Following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and sureness that in fact this was a footstep on the path. A footstep on the path to liberation. And so he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. It was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and no longer to be banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, banished or purified or released or relinquished by creating hardships for himself and then putting up with them or by trying to live through them by stealing, by hardening ourselves, and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by struggling, trying really hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And 
And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in maybe mental fantasies, various situations, activities, various relationships that created hardship, or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life, and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity at times. So in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did, and thinking just as he did that these situations and fantasies, activities, relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness, and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength might be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, the light of liberation, can never really be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally with a mind, a heart that's secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion and confusion and doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated and mindful presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed and clinging and fear and judgment, anger and confusion. That in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind, that's awakened, liberated. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisatta Siddhartha came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and for him, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening an important and useful footstep on the path to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it uh, to his student Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme 
austere practices. And that very soon after he made that decision, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl, and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree, the famous Bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And with that, and that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words, using his words, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity, he tells Sakaka that he then very systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of a concentrated, undisturbed mind, purified mind, is something that we could say young Siddhartha wandered into. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and and changing and passing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away, and nothing to run from. And yet, this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind made up, and often quite absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know is not true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or what we must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. So a mind made up a mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in, keeping us in conflict, keeping us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, the mind, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience. And as I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha, fall into three basic currents. 
the current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical, virtuous conduct, the current of samatha, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and the practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life. Carry us along and across to the other side, the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed mind. The current of samatha, the current of concentration, is a beautiful, healing, and powerful experience in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it is ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the nature of things, so that we recognize ultimate reality and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And a quote again from the Tibetan teacher B. Allen Wallace. Our practice is about the unification of samatha and vipassana. And V. Allen Wallace says this, the transformative power of Buddhist meditation occurs when the stability and vividness of samatha or concentration is unified with the penetrating insights of vipassana. Samatha by itself results in a temporary alleviation of the fundamental causes of suffering. And vipassana by itself provides only fleeting glimpses of reality. Our practice is about the unification of samatha and vipassana. So, as awakening beings, here we are today. More than 2,600 years later, after the story about the Buddha's early life that I shared took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and very powerful years of practice, here we are, exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and very amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. Each and all 
of these wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt are some of the basic roots and basic forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. So I'd like to close the talk with a poem, a poem uh, by Mary Oliver that speaks uh, to this evening's topic uh, in her quite unique and beautiful way and in relationship to our topic this evening in a somewhat oblique and yet very moving way. And I have to say that the poem is a little bit out of season here in the New England winter, but because uh, it's about spring. <laughs> but I encourage uh, each of you to kind of make the shift internally to a more spring-like environment as we uh, take in Mary Oliver's poem. And she calls this poem, Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened when I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree. And I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his sisters and all his brothers and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that's true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.